0: give you a minute to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue in our series, let us hold fast. Uh, When you get there, you can go ahead and stand now that you've sat down. good exercise. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians 6 chapter 9 or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 as we're considering the question of what the Bible says about homosexuality this morning. Let's read together with reverence and joy to the word of our God, written by the apostle Paul who is commissioned by the Lord Jesus and here inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation here and the knowledge of you this morning? Would you enlighten the eyes of our understanding so that we might behold wondrous things from your word here and so that we might be transformed by your word to live lives of love and faithfulness before you? Lives, lives that, that love you more than anything else, and love our neighbors as ourselves, so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, to the glory of your name, in Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. On September 20, 2009, Beckett Cook walked into a church in Hollywood. Identifying as a gay man and professing to be an atheist, Beckett had never been to church before. He'd spent the previous 15 years working as a very successful set designer in the fashion industry there in Hollywood. He worked with magazines like Vogue. He worked for companies like Gap and Nike. He fit in with the elite of Hollywood. Uh, he, He had been to the Oscars, the Emmys, the Golden Globes. He spent summers swimming in Drew Barrymore's swimming pool and having dinner parties at movie nights or movie stars' houses. Uh, He says that one night he spent a a magical night at Prince's house in Benedict Canyon where Prince performed a private three-hour concert for his guests. He said he was very happy in this milieu of fascinatingly creative people. Of course, growing up in, in Dallas in the 1980s, he, he felt that coming out as a gay man wasn't an option for him, but uh, he, he knew from an early age that he had been attracted to the same sex. As he got older, into his teens and 20s, there were older gay men who had, had mentored him, and, and he felt had finally helped him be comfortable in his own skin. As a result, he said that he had this, this kind of newfound sense that, well, this is who I am, and nothing is going to change that. However, as the the glamorous years in Hollywood went by, filled with parties and pride parades and boyfriends, Beckett says that the the law of diminishing returns began to set in. He he began to wonder, is this all there is for me? It was finally um, in March of 2009, he was at a party in Paris during Paris Fashion Week. Beckett began to just feel an overwhelming sense of emptiness wash over him. Surrounded by all this glitz and glam at Paris Fashion Week, he, he somehow knew in that moment that he couldn't go on living in this way. He just didn't know what to do. It wasn't long after that, that while sitting with a friend at a coffee shop in L.A., that that Beckett saw a group of young people nearby studying the Bible together, and, and he struck up a conversation with them. He asked them about their church, about their church's views on homosexuality. And in the course of this conversation, they invited him to church. And it was this church that he ended up attending on September 20, 2009, having never been to a church before. Friends, I wonder, what do you think that church has to offer to a person like Beckett Cook? What might they tell him after he, he walks through the doors that will help him? What will they tell him? Hey, you're doing just fine. Here's, here's some helpful advice for how to handle those feelings of emptiness, but overall, nothing needs to change. You're doing all right. And merely just words of affirmation and approval. Or instead, might they give him nothing more than condemning words? You, you irredeemable reprobate, you're not welcome here. Might they give him some good moral advice? Or they merely tell him what's, what's wrong with him, how he might improve himself morally speaking? Now well, These are three of perhaps many options, and, and they might very well be common messages given from various pastors and congregations across the United States today, but are congregations that give messages like that to people like Beckett, are they holding fast to biblical Christianity? This morning, we're continuing in this series called Let Us Hold Fast. The title is taken from Hebrews 4 and 10, where we're, uh, we're encouraged to hold fast to our confession of faith, to the Bible's teaching, to sound doctrine and theology. And in this series, your, your pastors here, we're trying to equip you and encourage you and give you the tools needed to do just that in this cultural moment. And so with that, this morning, we're, we're considering something of the subject of homosexuality together. What does the Bible say about this? And, and we're considering this in this series because of how prominent this subject is in our world today. And perhaps it won't come as much of a surprise that in the, the recent State of Theology report released last year uh, by Ligonier and Lifeway Research, that, that 28% of those professing to be gospel Christians agreed with the statement that the Bible's teaching concerning homosexuality doesn't apply today. In fact, the surprise might come that that number isn't higher, and all because it seems like there's been two occurrences simultaneously happening amongst professing Christians today in this cultural moment. First is the decrease in biblical literacy amongst professing Christians. Christians have become uh, more and more unlearned in what the Bible says on various subjects, including this one. And moreover, we've we've all simultaneously been increasingly inundated with information about and images of and the promotion of being pro LGBTQ plus in this age. Homosexuality um, is pr- portrayed favorably almost everywhere you look today. It's 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 it seems it's all in all of our media, you know, movies, social media, television, rainbow flags hang-in restaurants we go to, and stores we shop at, and in, in courthouse square downtown during Pride Month. Where, when are having a conversation with non-Christians about our faith, it's, this is almost inevitably one of the, conversation, or one of the questions that, that comes up. What do we believe about this? It's everywhere. The cultural pressure is constant, and so we need to talk about this for those reasons. But Moreover, we need to talk about this because the Bible talks about this. Okay, obviously, the Apostle Paul speaks to this very subject in 1 Corinthians 6 here, but he and the other biblical authors talk about it elsewhere as well, as we'll see this morning. The Bible talks about this. And therefore, as one of your pastors, it's my duty to do my best to equip you to think biblically about these issues in our cultural moment. So we need to address this. Please understand, I'm not going to be able to answer every question single question you might have or address every single issue or or every situation one might face regarding this subject. But what I want to show us this morning is that the Bible does indeed teach about homosexuality, that it teaches that homosexuality is a departure from God's design for us, and that therefore we shouldn't practice it or approve of it in others. But moreover, I want us to see that there's also a God with a gospel of grace that is sufficient for these things. And I want us to see that all of this is based on the teaching and authority of the Bible. Because here's the big assumption that that the world has about Christians on this issue. It's often thought that the reason professing Christians uh, believe that practicing homosexuality is a sin is simply because we find it to be distasteful, because we don't like it, because we're homophobic. I remember uh, watching, it was Aziz Ansari some time ago, and he started talking about uh, the Christian teaching about homosexuality, and he just plainly said, hey, just be honest. The reason you Christians disapprove of homosexuality is because you don't like gay people. That was his accusation. There's philosopher Alistair McIntyre who, who once argued that the predominant, so, uh, the predominant theory that governs Western people's ethical framework today is something called emotivism. Emotivism is is simply the way of doing ethics that boils everything down to personal preferences and the the way that you feel about any given ethical issue. In other words, ethical beliefs and decisions are nothing more than someone expressing how they feel about a particular thing or person. And based on what we see from the research of people like psychologist Jonathan Haidt, that's largely the way our culture works today ethical beliefs and decisions are very often made by individuals just based on however they feel about a particular thing in that moment. And so I think it's often assumed that that's what we're doing as Christians. But we need to be very clear here. While the world may make ethical judgments based on their personal preferences and tastes, we don't. The reason that we do, or the reason we ought to at least, believe that homosexual lifestyles are sinful is because Scripture does indeed teach that they are. And the Scriptures are our final authority on all that we say we believe as Christians. We need to be clear that what governs our beliefs about humanity and sexuality and ethics as Christians is not the way we feel about a particular person or about a particular group of people. In fact, the way that we feel as Christians about every person we come across the, in every pe- group of people is we ought to really feel that of compassion and care and sympathy and concern, and that includes our LGBTQ neighbors. But what governs our beliefs about those kinds of lifestyles is the Bible. And the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. And this point is often challenged by those outside the church and sometimes also by those seemingly inside the church that perhaps the Scriptures don't actually teach that homosexuality is a sin. Perhaps we've misunderstood Scripture's teaching. Perhaps that's more of just a church tradition. But but I, I hope for us to see together this morning that these kinds of assumptions are errant. Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul is the author of this letter, and he's writing to a local church there in a city called Corinth. And this church is chock full of problems, of problems of division, problems in their liturgy and practice of the Lord's Supper, problems with their doctrine, and problems with immorality and their approval of it in their church. There's so many problems here, and Paul is writing this letter to them as a way of equipping them and encouraging them to live as a holy and set-apart people. He emphasizes this very early on in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, when he writes to them, calling them the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Those words sanctified and saints are significant. They they, they both speak to the holiness and set-apartness of the church. He says that the church members in Corinth there have been sanctified, set apart from the world, and made holy in Jesus Christ. And they've been called saints, meaning a holy people. And they've been called to be this holy people together. In many ways, though, they're they're not living as this kind of community. And so Paul is exhorting them here in our passage this morning, and he's reminding them that unrepentant people, people that don't live as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, actually have no reason to think themselves as belonging to the kingdom of God. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous, his language here for unbelieving and unrepentant people. He says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says unrepentant people are not citizens of God's kingdom and will be put out at the final judgment when Christ returns. And then he goes on to list uh, uh, with a list in order to describe the lifestyles and behaviors of the unrighteous. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's, he's giving a, a, something of a descriptive list of those he previously called the unrighteous, and he begins his list with the sexually immoral. Now, that's a, a Swiss army knife kind of term that might describe a whole laundry list of practices and behaviors. The Greek word is actually that of pornos, from which we get the word porn. But it might describe everything from fornication to committing sexual abuse to incest to any number of other things. It includes all sexual acts and practices that depart from God's good design for sex. Next, he lists idolaters, those who love and trust in anything more than they love and trust in the one true God. He lists adulterers, those engaging in sexual activity with someone other than their spouse. He lists men who practice homosexuality, which we'll look uh, more at and and return to and spend most of our time on in just a moment. He lists thieves, those who take that which does not belong to them. He lists the greedy, that's those who, who covet the money and material possessions of others and who unrighteously hoard what they themselves have. He lists drunkards as those who over-consume intoxicating substances. He, he lists revilers, those who are verbally abusive toward others. And lastly, swindlers, or those who cheat or deceive others. He, he says, those who live these kinds of lifestyles and give themselves over to these kinds of behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not citizens of God's kingdom. And to be clear here, understand, he's not saying that Christians never sin nor ever struggle with these kinds of sins or or not even that they never commit these kinds of sins. Of course, he's not saying that. He wouldn't be affirming the sainthood and salvation of those in the church of Corinth if that were the case, right? But here's the reality. Christians, Christians sin. Okay, Christians sin. We sin. So I don't need to tell you all that. You know that. But the difference is this. Christians, unlike the unrighteous here, Christians take God's side against their sin, not their sin's side against God. Christians take God's side against their sin, not their sin's side against God. And taking God's side against their sin, Christians give themselves to confessing their sin in humility and to fighting their sin and struggling against their sin and progressively putting to death their sin all by the Holy Spirit's grace and power so that while Christians might lose battles at at times against their particular sin struggles, they continue to fight this war against it their entire lives long. They continually fight this war against sin. In other words, they don't give themselves wholly over to these kinds of lifestyles and practices, and that includes practicing homosexuality, as we see in verse 9 here. The ESV translation says, nor men who practice homosexuality. And your translation might say something a, a little bit different. The, I think the reason they do that is because the original is actually a bit more explicit than our uh, uh, most of our translations. If we were to translate this list more literally, we might translate it this way. He's going down the list, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And then there's actually two Greek words he uses to describe the the sentence that that the ESV translates here. He says, nor the receiving partners in homosexual acts, nor the active partners in homosexual acts. And then he goes on. See, the original is, is quite a bit more explicit than many of our English translations. It explicitly mentions both the active and passive partners, the giving and receiving partners in homosexual acts. Now, because of this, some readers interpret this verse as having not actually addressed what we commonly think of as homosexuality today. Okay, so, so some have said that, well, you know, Paul here, he's not talking about two consenting adults who love one another and care for one another in a relationship of mutual commitment. Rather, they say, he's actually talking about homosexual prostitution. And, and some people say that because the terms used here in the original at times elsewhere described that very thing. Okay, as well as also sometimes describing uh, homosexual sex, slavery, and pedophilia. However, when you look at other sources from this time period, it's plain to see that these terms also apply to homosexual acts between two consenting adults as well, which was very common in the Greco-Roman world at the time. These terms don't exclusively describe male prostitution and sex slavery and pedophilia. They do at times, but they also describe homosexual acts between two consenting adults, and of course, this is not the only place that the Bible addresses this issue. In fact, uh, excuse me, Paul is here picking up on a tradition that he received from the Book of Leviticus. Okay, Leviticus addresses this very issue twice. One of those places is Leviticus eighteen twenty-two, and there, if you look there, you find that Moses once wrote. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In other words, he says, Don't give yourself to homosexual activity because it's a departure from God's design. It's improper. It's impure. And it's stated clearly here. And I know, I know some people will hear me say just the word Leviticus and go, You can't use that verse. You can't talk about that. That's the same book that forbids wearing clothing made of the same material and tossing around the pig skin and all of that. Uh, fans of the wonderful show, The West Wing, will be familiar with that argument. And uh, I would just say this, you can't dismiss that verse so easily. Okay, Leviticus is also the book from which we get the, uh, originally get the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't dismiss that command. And we shouldn't, rightfully so, we don't dismiss the command to love our neighbor as ourselves because we recognize in it that it's an eternally morally binding principle that also therefore still directly applies to us today. And so you see, as we read a book like Leviticus, we've got to carefully think through and and interpret what commands no longer directly apply to us as Christians because they were ceremonially or civilly or covenantally appropriate for that time period. And what kind of commands continue to be morally binding because they speak to eternal standards fixed by the will of God Himself? And the Apostle Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth, he's showing us here that Leviticus 18:22 belongs to that latter category, Uh, and he does the same elsewhere as well. You could look at Romans 1. In Romans 1, uh, Paul is—he's writing to the church in Rome, obviously. And this is perhaps even more explicit than 1 Corinthians 6, because here Paul doesn't merely use terms or titles to speak of this matter of homosexual practice. He actually describes something of the behavior and practice itself. In Romans 1, Paul, he's been writing about idolatry and the sinfulness of the various nations of the world. And he says that their sin and idolatry led to God handing them over to their sinful passions. And in being handed over to these sinful passions, Paul says... Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Notice, this is not pedophilia or sex slavery or prostitution. This is men and, and women are mentioned here too. This is men and women being filled with passion for one another and engaging in, what is plain to see, consensual sexual acts. And Paul says that these kinds of activities are not in accordance with nature. He he says that homosexual acts and behavior are contrary to nature. In other words, he's saying they're not in accordance with the way that God has designed us to be and to live. It's a departure he says, from God's design. It crosses divinely appointed boundaries for sexual behavior. Boundaries that God himself has set in place. You could look at the the, the epistle of Jude, where Jude says much the same thing in verses 5 to 7 there. uh, There there, there he likewise refers to homosexual behavior as being unnatural. But of course, both people in, in and outside the church have sometimes said, okay, We got you, Leviticus, Paul, even Jude. But what about Jesus? Jesus never addressed the issue. Well, isn't he the one you follow? Not Paul, not Jude, not Moses, Jesus. And he never said a thing about it. First, let me say this. That's not how we read the Bible. Okay, we believe in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, Uh, that all Scripture comes to us from the mouth of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit, and therefore that all Scripture is authoritative, is the authoritative Word of Christ, not just what we find in the Gospels. But even with that, Jesus does indeed address the issue. Uh, He doesn't address it directly, but He does in an indirect way, and and He does this by taking us all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. So if you look at Matthew 19, 4 to 6, There, Jesus has been asked a question about divorce, particularly if a man can divorce his wife for any reason. And this is how he responds. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, is he directly addressing the issue and that he's answering a question particularly about homosexuality? Of course not. But, but is he indirectly addressing the issue in his answer on divorce? Yes. And in this way, he's, he, he's locating marriage and therefore sexual relations as being between one man and one, one, one woman all of which speaks to the issue of divorce, obviously, but also has undeniable application to the issue of homosexuality. Notice how Jesus does it. He takes us all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 to show us how God designed marriage and sexuality to work. Particularly between a, a male and a female, a man and a woman in marriage. In Genesis 1, if you read it, you'll, you'll notice that everything seems to come in couples and to have its direct Complementary counterpart, which fits with it perfectly and beautiful and with gorgeous complementarity. There's light and there's darkness. There's heaven and there's earth. There's land and there's sea. There's morning, there's evening, there's sun, there's moon, there's fish, there's birds, there's plants and animals. And then there's male and female who fit together in a way that enables them to become one in marriage and in sex. And friends, because this is the way that God designed things to be, isn't it then also just naturally observable, right? Men and women fit together in a way that is naturally observable, and and so much so that the majority of the world today and throughout history, including non-Christians, have ordinarily said that heterosexual relations are natural and homosexual relations are unnatural, a one fits together and ordinarily results in procreation and the furthering of the human race in the world, and the other doesn't fit together and cannot ever result in procreation because it's not natural, all because he who created them in the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is what Scripture teaches, and it does so clearly. And this is why we believe homosexuality to be a departure from God's design. This is why we believe it crosses boundaries that God has put in place. This is why we believe it to be sin, because the scriptures teach that it is, and the Bible is our final authority as followers of Jesus. These are not merely human documents here. Okay, these are the words of God breathed by the Holy Spirit And we don't have the right or ability to toy or fudge with what God has said. He's the one that created and designed us. He's he's the one that has the final say over all things, including that of our sexuality. Now, let me give two caveats to this. First, I, I want us to recognize and remember this. The dangers involved in discussions about sexual ethics in our cultural moment you're not just going to find those dangers on the left. You're going to find these dangers on the right as well. There are real and formidable and perhaps even more insidious dangers on the right too. I I know that the, the dangers involving sexuality coming from the left right now are perhaps more noticeable and recognizable in many ways, and they're very real. That's why I wanted to talk about it in this series However, there are dangers coming from the right too. We, we, we've seen those on the right and those within evangelicalism itself practicing sexual immorality, sometimes secretly or even committing sexual abuse and hiding it, covering it up, all while maintaining a vocal condemnation of homosexuality. We can't ignore situations like with Jerry Falwell Jr. and Ravi Zacharias. We can't ignore what's gone on in the SBC over the last several decades where sexual abuse and other forms of hidden sexual immorality have gone sometimes tolerated and covered up for years. And often tolerated and covered up in the name of not hurting the witness of the church or protecting a fruitful ministry or some satanic nonsense like that. Not only that, we also ought to remember the evangelical enthusiasm and choosing to look the other way for a certain presidential candidate who not only committed but blatantly bragged about sexual immorality and abuse. Friends, when, when Christians look the other way or excuse sexual abuse and sexual immorality on the one hand, all while condemning homosexuality on the other hand, it makes our words ring hollow and hypocritical because they are. We ought never approve of or gloss over sexual immorality or sexual abuse in any form just because theologically or politically a person lines up with us on paper. We ought never tolerate it just because someone seemingly has a successful ministry endeavor or because it's politically expedient. The Bible's teaching here in 1 Corinthians 6 and everywhere would condemn that as well. So don't be deceived into thinking that these kinds of dangers are only present on the left. There are real and formidable dangers regarding immorality, sexual immorality on the right too. And then my other caveat here is for those of you who who struggle with same-sex attraction, but who are seeking to faithfully follow Jesus, please know that we are thankful for you and we're glad that you're here. And, and, And I want you to see here that the scriptures nowhere condemn you for struggling with same sex attraction. They do forbid and condemn homosexual practices and behaviors and lifestyles, and they would condemn homosexual lust, same as they would heterosexual lust. But notice that the, the theme here in our verses that we've been looking at speaks of that of practicing. And so, part of your calling and burden in being a disciple of Christ in this life is to not act in accordance with those attractions. So we all have desires and attractions that we're not to act upon as believers in Jesus Christ, and this is one of them for you. I know that the world will will say that what I just said there is damaging and harmful. You know what's actually damaging and harmful is when the world tells you that you are the sum of your feelings and sexual desires, that your identity is wrapped up in your sexual desires or romantic attractions. And what I've said could only be considered abusive in a world wherein that's the case. What I, I want you to see here is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, your deepest identity is that of being in Christ and being, therefore, a beloved son or daughter of God in him. That's your identity. Your identity is based on something far more secure than passing feelings or urges. And because of that, you can be far more secure and more resilient than if you were basing your identity on your attractions or physical urges. Those are passing. Those are fading. Those are fragile. But Christ and his kingdom are eternal and imperishable. And so if your identity is based on him, then there's nothing in this entire world that can actually get at your identity. And and if you think of it, What a sweeping difference that would make in our lives. We realize that. A few points of application before we close. First, if we're going to hold fast in the face of the challenges in this cultural moment, particularly when they involve sexual immorality and homosexuality, then guys, we, we must be resolute in our belief in the authority of the Bible. Undoubtedly, in the West in general and in the U.S. in particular, we've entered a new kind of era wherein it relates to Christianity quite differently than it has in the past. Right? In the past, you might have been able to assume that the average Westerner in America had something of a friendlier disposition toward Christianity. On the whole, society viewed us neutrally, perhaps even favorably at times. I think we all can tell those days are gone. And as time goes on, you you might very well face an increase in difficulty and opposition for holding fast to biblical convictions, holding fast to certain biblical truths regarding things like sexuality and other similarly unpopular biblical truths very well might at times make your life difficult. And with that, you're likely going to face temptation to let go of or undermine some scriptural teaching just to make your life a bit easier. I saw this when I lived in Columbus a few years ago, several years ago. There's a young woman there in our church who operated a wedding videography business and and who, because of her biblical convictions, wouldn't shoot for ceremonies for same-sex couples. For years, she turned down opportunities without any problems. But in 2015, she turned down an offer to shoot for a, a lesbian couple ceremony, and she subsequently suffered an onslaught of attacks. She would get calls with people screaming at her. You get calls with death threats. They contacted the Better Business Bureau. They removed her business from her town's Chamber of Commerce membership. People who had never met her before used her services, left scathing reviews on Google or Facebook. And, and eventually, due to all of this, she lost her business. She had to shut down completely. And honestly, it would have just been a lot easier for her to compromise her biblical convictions and do what the world wanted her to do. It would have been easier to just compromise. And if you're not rock solid on the authority and truthfulness of the Bible, you will. You might not face a situation exactly like her, but these kinds of things are going to be increasingly common. And if you're not rock solid on the scriptures being true and authoritative for us, you'll compromise instead of hold fast. Next, along with that, we must hold fast by slaying the idol of approval. It might be one of the biggest temptations, one of the bigger temptations, I should say, in our generation to compromise on biblical truth and standards because we want the love and approval of the world. And not just the world in general, but actually like our loved ones, our friends, neighbors, co-workers, real people. When faced with the temptation to hold fast or buckle under the pressure, one of the major considerations for many of us might be what is this person going to think of me? What are they going to say? What are they going to do to me? And can we just be frank? It hurts when people reject us. It hurts. Listen, it's perfectly acceptable and normal and healthy to experience that as painful. We're not robots. It hurts when people reject us. It's okay to be hurt by that. But what's not okay is to let people's acceptance or rejection control our lives and to let it be more important to us than God and what he said in his word. Don't be like the men that John speaks of in, in John 12:43, who love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Be more concerned about what pleases God. Be more in awe of God. Be more in reverence of God than you are of people. Be more concerned about the glory that comes from God then the glory that comes from people for the glory that comes from people is quickly fading and passing away but the glory that comes from God is forever. Slay the idol of approval. Third, hold fast with compassionate hearts. We want to hold the biblical truth. We want to continue to confess and believe and contend for what the Bible says. However, we never want to do that at the expense of being gentle, kind, patient, compassionate people. The fruit of the Spirit has no exclusion clause. We're to be like the gentle and lowly Christ who sent us even while holding fast to the truth. And to the end, friends, part of what we need to realize is that when we look at our LGBTQ neighbors or our neighbors who engage in otherwise sexually immoral behavior, Is that we're not looking at people unlike ourselves. We are looking at fellow image bearers. We are looking at fellow sinners who are in need of Christ's redemption, same as us. So even while we don't approve of sexual immorality, we also approach others always with compassionate hearts that reflect the heart of our Christ. We want to reflect the heart of our Christ who, who came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We want to reflect the heart of our Christ who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We want to reflect the heart of our Christ who came not to condemn the world, but to save the world by giving himself on a cross for our sins, including sins of sexual immorality and homosexuality. And so with that, our sexually immoral and LGBTQ plus neighbors are not our enemies. And even if they are, we know from Christ how we're to treat our enemies, we're to love them and do good to them and pray for them even while contending for the truths and standards of God's Word. Hold fast with compassionate hearts. And lastly, hold fast to the gospel in order to pass it on. Hold fast to the gospel in order to pass it on. Here's the thing, friends. Since the sexual revolution started in the 1960s, our nation has reaped the whirlwind. One scholar points out that from 1960 to the turn of the century, America has doubled its divorce rate, tripled its teen suicide rate, quadrupled its violent crime rate, quintupled its prison population, sextupled its out-of-wedlock births, and septupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which has been established as a significant predictor of divorce. Those, those trends are the fruits of seeds planted in the sexual revolution, and those seeds have sprouted and grown, and things have only gotten worse. And I, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, but it seems that based on those trends, we can safely assume that, that as the avalanche of the sexual revolution continues to gain momentum, The carnage is going to continue to accumulate and grow. And and that just makes sense when you consider that lifestyles of sexual immorality are outside of God's good design for us. And you can only live outside of the way you were designed for so long until things start to fracture and atomize and break. And we're beginning to see that, and we'll continue to see that more and more. I once heard Russell Moore say that sometime down the road, there might be years, might be decades... There's going to be a slew of refugees of the sexual revolution coming to the church of Jesus Christ looking for peace, looking for hope, looking for redemption, looking for forgiveness, looking for wholeness, because they, they looked for it in all the sexual revolution and all they found was emptiness and brokenness and despair. Despair. And part of my desire for Veritas is that if and when that day comes, whenever it is, that we're going to have a gospel to give them. But in order for us to have a gospel to give them, we need to hold fast, we need to preserve, we need to protect this gospel that we've been entrusted with by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of our God. Because it's only in this gospel that we find that redemption and healing and forgiveness and wholeness that we all long for. It's in that gospel that refugees of the sexual revolution can find enduring hope and life and peace. Don't we see this in our text this morning? We looked at 1 Corinthians 6 9 and 10 earlier, where Paul lists out sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality. He lists thieves. Greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and he says that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such people can't presume to be citizens of his kingdom. But eleven, verse eleven contains such hope-filled words. He says, "And such were some of you. Such were some of you, Corinthians. Such were some of you, saints here at Veritas. I know I was." But Paul says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you were filthy with sin, but you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. He says, you were defiled and sinful, but you've been sanctified and set apart as holy for God. He says, you were guilty but you've been justified. You've been declared righteous in the court of heaven, and you no longer bear an ounce of your guilt, all because of the cross of Jesus Christ, where he bore your guilt and took your shame. All of this comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, there's hope for the broken, for the bruised, for the sinful. My friends, our gospel is not a reward for good people. It is forgiveness and redemption and new life for bad and broken and sinful people like you and like me and like every human being that has ever walked the face of this planet. It is a gospel in which Christ took the judgment we deserve for our sins so that we might receive salvation and the reward that he alone deserves. This gospel is a gospel that offers salvation from sin and guilt itself, giving us forgiveness and cleansing and everlasting life. And that gospel is worth preserving and protecting and holding fast to because it's our only hope. So back to Beckett Cook. What did that church offer him on that Sunday morning, September 20, 2009? By God's grace, it was a church that held fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what they offered him. They offered him the gospel. They offered him Jesus. They offered him new life in Christ. And by God's grace, Beckett says, every word that that pastor said rang true in his heart that morning. He writes about his experience. He says that that he was thinking that morning, this is the gospel He said, it turned everything I understood about religion on its head. It truly was good news. He says, the Holy Spirit overwhelmed me. God revealed himself to me. I began bawling uncontrollably. I knew God was real. Jesus was his son. Heaven was real. The Bible was true. All in an instant. He goes on writing saying, I also knew that homosexual behavior was a sin. The Holy Spirit made it clear as day. I knew being gay was no longer who I was. It was a part of my past, but I didn't care. I had just met the king of the universe, Jesus, and his love is all-consuming, and so I am more than willing to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. He is worth it. He walked in that morning Having not been a citizen of God's kingdom, but He walked out having been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, hold fast to the Word of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might have something of, of, of lasting and eternal worth for ourselves and also to offer to a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts as we come to the table? Remind us of the good news of this gospel. Strengthen us in communion with Jesus Christ to hold fast to your word, to your gospel, so that we might have something of lasting and eternal worth for ourselves and to offer to this world who needs it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.